Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and it is Saturday, June 12th, 2010. B.Y. James is off tonight. This is Yahweh's Covenant People, and I'm here with Sword Brethren. And we're going to discuss... We're going to discuss Greek culture and and um, how it's really Hebrew culture retold in the Greek language, right? Absolutely, yes. Greetings. Praise Yahweh. Hello. Praise Yahweh. I have a paper on my site. I, I didn't um, prepare anything from it for this program. Uh, I have my own notes for this program from from the tragic poets. And and first, let me discuss this paper on, on, on my site. It's called Scripture Parallels in Ancient Classics or Bible Echoes. It's available on the front page of Christagenia.org. It's by Crawford Tate Ramage, or Ramage, or however you want to pronounce his last name. It was published in Edinburgh in 1878. I'd like to read part of the preface. In bringing together the finer thoughts of Greek and Roman authors, it was impossible not to be struck by their likeness to what is found in the inspired writings of the Old and New Testament. And, and I found a lot of that myself in, in reading the classics. Once you know the Bible and read the classics, you cannot help but see the parallels over and over and over again. To continue, here and there in my Greek and Latin volumes, attention was drawn to this parallelism, but it was done, and, and he's talking about Greek and Latin volumes that he had written previously. But it was done in too cursory a manner to carry out my views as fully as could have been wished. It has been, therefore, thought that it might not be without interest to enter more at length into the subject and to illustrate the, the sacred writers by placing along, alongside of them parallel thoughts which have, are to be found in profane authors. I am not aware that any complete work of this kind has ever appeared. Of course, this is written in 1878. And, and he mentions several writers that did draw such parallels in, in particular works, like Duport from the Iliad and the Odyssey, or Luxdorf, who, who wrote a small essay comparing the thoughts of Plato to those of the Bible. Schneider, in 1865, illustrated the doctrines of, of Christian religion and, and what he thought of it from the classics. And all these are only available, according to Ramaj, to the learned and are of a limited nature, where his work has a wider scope and aims at bringing within reach of a large body of educated men through their knowledge of the classical language, though their knowledge of the classical languages may be slight, the profound thoughts of the ancient poets and philosophers that may be regarded as little else than the echoes of the inspired writers. And, and that's, I concentrated on the tragic poets with this program tonight in my own notes, and that's because that they're very early, that they date to the um, 5th century B.C., and, and they tell stories that occurred long before their own time in many cases. Their, their tragic poets are centered around the Trojan War and, and sometimes around the Persian Wars. And, and to me, they're probably – it's the first um, – well, well, they were elegaic poets and bucolic poets, but the tragic poets are the first poets that, that sought to tell long stories in, in their poetry, that next to the epic poets like, like Homer, who, who pre, preceded so, them by about 100 years. The Trojan War was, what, the 11th or 12th century B.C.? 
Well, right. The Trojan War is commonly dated, and I mean Thucydides is confident enough to put an exact date on it. And, and according to Thucydides, if I'm not mistaken, the fall of Troy would have been about 1185 B.C. And, and the war having lasted 11 years, it probably started around just after the turn of the 12th century B.C., yes. And most modern historians several decades ago would have said that the war didn't happen and the city never existed. But, well, you know, right. And, and different discoveries have proven them wrong. Well, well, there are discoveries that have proven them wrong, but, you know, Troy itself is very elusive, and, and they've, even the, um, I can't think of his name right now, I'm drawing a blank, um, Schleiman, Schleiman is his name, even the Troy supposedly discovered by Schleiman, if that is indeed Troy, is is very small compared to descriptions of the city, and, and I'm not, I, I didn't copy it out, but in Euripides, it, it says that you cannot even see the footprint of its walls, that every stone was removed from ancient Troy to help rebuild the surrounding cities, which suffered damage during the wars of the Danans against the Trojans, but not as much, where Troy was leveled. And, and they, they, the tragic poets say that they actually moved, removed the stones to help rebuild other cities. So, so I mean, that would make very much sense. That's why we don't really find Troy or, or anything as big as what we should, should think to be Troy, because the Greeks themselves testified that all the stones and the walls were removed. Okay, I, I, this is a big topic. I, I think that once um, somebody studies the classics, and if they know the Bible, they come to the full realization that Greek mythology is the Hebrew story retold from exactly the point that the Hebrew Bible says that the children of Israel of the, of the dispersion would have it from, and that's from the pagan, from, from the pagan Canaanite paganism um, way of thinking. Because the children of Israel were put off from the land, there was a dispersion of Israel because they had turned pagan. And, and I'm going to give um, many examples here. I don't know if you have your own comments, Brian, but I'm going to start with the Heskelis, Prometheus Bound, from line 755, and I'm going to read about six lines of dialogue here. Right. And, and this is, um, Prometheus was supposedly one of the gods, and he was being punished for bringing fire to man. This, this is one of the earliest Greek myths. He was being punished for bringing fire to man. And so, therefore, he was chained to a mountain in the Caucasus. And Yo, Yo is a woman that was being punished, I think, by Hera, because Zeus had, had more or less had um, an infatuation with her. So Yo was changed into a cow and so, forced to wander the planet, wander the Oikumene or the world. So the Greeks certainly had a concept of deities or non-corporeal beings mating with mortal women. Well, well all the time. All, all the time. It, it's a very common tale. Now, did this occur in the um, Norse paganism? Did they have a concept of that? 
I I don't know if they had a concept of, of gods mating with mortal women. I I don't know. I, I've read parts of the Edas. I've read the Voluspas, but it's been a long time, and and I don't really have a a large memory for them. I only read them to pick certain things out of them, and and not to follow to fill my head with with the stories of the characters. All right. Aeschylus, Prometheus Bound, from line seven fifty five. This is a dialogue. Yo, that's her name. What? Shall Zeus one day be hurled from his dominion? Prometheus. Thou would rejoice, I I trow, or I imagine, to see that happen. Yo. How should I not, since tis at the hand of Zeus I still suffer, I suffer ill? Prometheus. Then thou mayest assure thyself that these things are so. Yo. By whom shall... He be despoiled of the scepter of his sovereignty. Prometheus, by himself and his own empty-headed purposes. Yo, in what wise? Oh, tell me, if there be no harm in telling. Prometheus, he shall make a marriage that shall one day cause him ruth. Yo, with one divine of birth or with a mortal? If I may be told, speak out. Prometheus, why ask with whom? Of this I may not speak. Yo. Is it by his consort that he shall be dethroned? Prometheus, A, since she shall bear a son mightier than his sire. And and we see this, that to me, we, we here we see the same Greek idea of that same Hebrew Messiah minus one important point. The Greeks thought that Zeus would be replaced by his own son, while Israelites believed that Yahweh would be his own son who would then rule all the nations. That's the idea of a Greek, of a Hebrew Messiah. One difference is that the Greeks insisted upon a humanized god, Zeus, which is a product of their own pagan insistencies. And, and as Paul told the Romans, they turned the image of the invisible god into that of a man. A corruptible man. Right. Now, many may point to this as well as to many other stories, which we're going to see here, and claim that the Bible had a pagan origin. But the truth is that Isaiah wrote 150 years before Aeschylus. Paganism has a biblical origin. Isaiah wrote, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The idea that God would be born as a child is probably much older than Isaiah. It's the Hebrew, it's the ancient Hebrew promise of of a Messiah right from the beginning, from from um, what which is we start to see in Genesis chapter three, and and the Greeks took that idea with them in their dispersion, and they paganized, they paganized it. But it's clear that the Hebrew story is much older. So this common notion that the Christian Bible or the, the Hebrew Bible are just largely based upon ancient pagan traditions, that's just bunk, which is demonstrably false by virtue of the fact that Isaiah wrote over a century prior that he's faithful. So in essence, they stole our traditions. Well, well, the pagans that had the, 
they were the same people. It, it's not that the pagan—it's not the pagans versus us. Most of our ancestors were also pagan. It's—it's mm. it's the idea that the pagans took that the children of Israel took with them into the dispersion. All of the stories that they were handed down as Hebrews, and in the dispersion, they paganized those stories. So they corrupted everything. Well, yes, and, and that's because ancient poetry was also ancient entertainment. And the same thing today. Most people are pagans today. Well, look, look at the, um, the corrupted teachings of the church and, and the common perception in the minds of, of most people it is a very pagan perception. They think that there's room at the altar of Jesus for Buddha, the, the Hindu idols, and whoever else wants to be there. And they say that we're not the real Christians because we preach racial purity. The church has always had a large amount of paganism in it. Organized religion has always had that. It attracts people. It, it mystifies them. They like the stories. They they like the um, the, the varieties of false learning. It, it's... It's like the weekend trip to the movie theater. All right. I, I didn't have time to put these notes into any logical order, so it's going to seem like I'm skipping around. What I'm really doing is I'm going through my notes in, in the order that they appeared in the classics. I'm sorry. Right. Aeschylus, Prometheus Bound, from line 324. Therefore, take me as thy teacher and kick not against the pricks. And, and this same line appears in, in Agamemnon, which is another play by Aeschylus, and, and that's from line 1621. Bonds and the pangs of hunger are the far best mediciners of wisdom for the instruction even of old age. In, in other words, what he's saying is that when, when we're in slavery and hungry, that's when we're most apt to learn. And believe me, that's probably true. Has eyes and Have you eyes, he's asking, and lack understanding, which is also a Hebrew a, a saying we see in, in the prophets and in Christ many times. It's right and out we're of gonna, the Gospel of Matthew. Well, well right, and we're going to see that in, in the next discussion, in, in the next little topic I have here at, at greater length. And, and kick not against the pricks, lest thou strike to thy heart. And I'm only showing that this kick against the pricks means, and, and that's the literal translation of it, to offer vain resistance and that's the same exact wording that Paul used in Acts 26.14. And that's all I want to show is that Paul is using um, a Greek saying, more or less, uh, all right, in Acts 26.14, where he says, And we, when we were fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. That's a Greek saying. That That's predated Paul by at least 500 years, Paul's repeating a, a Greek um, adage. So why would he use a Greek colloquialism if he wasn't a Greek? Well, well right, and, and what, I'm, what I'm trying to point out, and that's only one of them, there are many more, but that, that's one very obvious one, that Paul used many Greek colloquialisms because the, the cultures were basically very, very similar. And an Edomite Jew wouldn't know that colloquialism, would he? Well, they might because they they understood the Greeks and read the Greeks, but the Edomites were very um resist they 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 were not Judeans by any means that they, they were not Hebrewists 
from that viewpoint. They brought their own religion, that this tradition of the elders, into Hebrewism, but um, and 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 that gave us Judaism. But um, that that's you know they were very resistant to Greek culture in many ways. Okay, Aeschylus, Prometheus Bound, from line 447. Now, no, let me state again that Aeschylus wrote this play, that this poem, which is really a play, in, in um, the 5th century B.C. First of all, though they had eyes to see, they saw to no avail. In other words, they had eyes, but they weren't able to see. They had ears, but understood not. But like shapes and dreams throughout the length of their days, without purpose they wrought all things in confusion. Now, are these not like the words which we see in Isaiah 6, 9, what which precedes Aeschylus by 150 years? And he said, go and tell this people, hear ye, hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. That It's the same exact saying. It, it's the same. It's put the same way. Are the words the same in Greek as well? Well, well, the yeah, you know Isaiah was originally written in Hebrew, but they are basically you know very similar to the Greek words of the New Testament. Aeschylus from a play called The Persians from line one seventy six. Here the poet puts these words into the mouth of Atosa. Atosa is the mother of Xerxes, the Persian king, and Xerxes goes off to war, and Aeschylus puts these words in his mother's mouth. I have ever been haunted by many a dream at night since my son, having fitted forth his armament, departed hence with intent to lay waste the land of the Ionians. But never yet have I beheld so distinct a vision as yesternight. I will describe it unto thee. I dreamed that two women in fair vesture, one appareled in Persian garb, the other in Dorian attire, appeared before mine eyes, both in stature far more striking than the women of our time, in beauty flawless, sisters of the self-same race. So Aeschylus, Aeschylus the poet that wrote this, he was a veteran of the Battle of Marathon. He wrote only a few years after the wars with the Persians. That's when he wrote most of his plays. He did not consider the Ionians to be related to the Persians. But here he professes that the Dorians and the Persians were sister races. Mm, are or, they? Or sisters of the same race. Well, well we'll discuss that. In, in the 2nd century B.C., 300 years after Aeschylus, a Spartan king who was also a Dorian, writing sometime later to the high priest in Judea, professed that the Dorians were derived from the stock of Abraham as well as the Judeans, and that they were kindred. Who, who and, and Josephus records this letter. I can argue that the Dorians were Israelites who departed from the Levant circa 1100 B.C., but here it is evident that they must have known it themselves and that they must have known that the Persians were related to them and Shemites. As the Greek writers considered Dorians and Persians, clearly here from Aeschylus, to be related. 
but they don't make mention that Dorians and Ionians, or Ionians and Persians, are related. And the Ionians are Japhethites. So when would you the say... The Dorians and Ionians were, were allies against the Persians in, in the wars against Persia. And at the time those wars were happening, they were basically all racially cousins, right? This is well before the Persians became polluted in the modern people they are today. Well, right. They were all white. They were all white, Adamic people. They were they were all fair and, and fair-haired and, and white-skinned. They're all described as having ivory skin. And the, the Parthians are much the same then? Well, yes, but the Parthians at this time don't control Persia yet. Okay. The Parthians are an insignificant Scythian tribe at this time. It's another 300 years before they gain control of Persia. Now, the um, Aeschylus, who, who's a Greek, is saying that the, the Dorians are the same race as the Persians. And, and to say that and exclude the Ionians, who are also Greeks, with the Dorians. The Dorians and Ionians are both considered Greeks, but the Ionians are Japhethites. And, and that's clear in, in Scripture. But the Dorians are Israelites, and the Persians are also Shemites in Scripture. And, and that's the only way I know that the, the Dorian Greeks could have known that they were of the same race as the Persians. So, do you know I, who, who founded Persia? I mean, how did Persia come to exist? Well, according to the Greeks, it came to exist through, through the god Perseus, who, who was um, hmm, a descendant of Iapetus, I believe. Or, or They have a Iapetus in their genealogies of certain eastern tribes. And that Iapetus is no, – no, I think it's Ion that's a descendant of Iapetus. I'm, 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 my memory is fuzzy in that. Yepetus is the Greek form of Japheth, and it does appear, the name does appear in some of the early genealogies of the nations from gods, because the Greeks believed that every nation came from a, a particular um, god or goddess, or, or some nations were autoxenous, meaning they sprung from the ground, and, and it's all mythology. Their, their, their Persian Zoroastrianism is basically just a, a corruption of the Israelite tradition of God versus Satan, isn't it? Yes, Clifton did some work on that a few years ago, and it, and it very much seems to be. Zoroastrian very much may, it may have even come from Hebrews, but it, it's not necessarily so. But it's definitely a, um, a light versus darkness, good versus evil, um, Yahweh versus Satan religion. And the reason there was so much resistance to Islam when Islam came into that region in the 6th, 7th, and 8th centuries is because the people recognized it as an alien religion that had nothing to do with their tradition. Okay, Aeschylus, the Persians, again, from line 640. Here, Atosa, the queen mother of, of Persia, is lamenting the Persian loss of the Battle of Salamis, where, where the Persians lost their entire navy to the Greeks in one day. And while she stands at the tomb of her dead husband, Darius, who's the father of Xerxes, Darius is dead when, when the war begins, well, when Xerxes invades. He actually died in a prior battle. The spirit of Darius is conjured 
at his tomb. And Atosa, his wife, who's still living, has a conversation with him. Lines such as these appear in the story. And I quote, O earth, and you rulers of them that dwell in the netherworld, vouchsafe, I implore that the glorious spirit, the god of the Persians, and, and the emperors were seen as gods, right? In Egypt, in Rome, and even in Persia. Whom Susa bore may quit his abode. Send to the upper world him whose like Persian earth never yet entombed. O Idonius, Idonius. Now, that's strange because Adon is a Hebrew word, means Lord, right? Thou who conveyest shades, shades of the spirits of men, to the upper air, suffer our divine Lord Darian, or Darius, to come forth. In, in other words, that they're conjuring his spirit. And, and this is in Aeschylus' play. But the spirit is conjured, and Aeschylus de- depicts Darius as having a conversation with his wife, Atosa, who is still living. And, and this, to me, is reminiscent of 1 Samuel chapter 28, where Saul has the spirit of Samuel conjured up from among the dead and has a conversation with him. So, so we see that the Greeks had, and this, this is evident in many other places, the same ideas concerning the Hebrews of the dead and, and of the, um, the sojourn of the spirit in Hades, or which was the Hebrew Sheol, or the netherworld. So to them, Hades is basically the grave, right? Well, well, no, Hades was the abode of the dead, where, where the spirits of men stayed until they were judged. All spirits, right? Well, at that time, yes. And, and I would say that that was the Hebrew belief also, before the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. So these people today that think as soon as you die, you either go to a big fiery pit or you're on a cloud playing a harp, where are they getting that from? Disney movies? Well, they're, they're getting it from misinterpretations of ancient mythology that were um, the work of the, the early Catholic Church. That's where they're getting it from. Christ smashed the gates of hell. There is no more Hades. There is no more um, netherworld for the spirits of, of Adamic men. So when we die, we just go to the grave until the judgment. No, when we die, we, we, we're present with God. If you're a, an Adamite, when you die, you're present with God. That's Christian. That That is the New Testament scripture. That is what the New Testament teaches. Okay. Ahistoa, seven against Thebes, from line 196. Let me say that the people of Thebes were Phoenicians which I believe are Israelites from the northern tribes of Israel. The poet puts these words into the mouth of Eteocles, the king of Thebes. Now, if there shall be one who shall refuse obedience to my authority, meaning to the king, man or woman or whatsoever is betwixt. So nothing's changed, right? San Francisco, they're not doing anything new. (laughs) Do you believe the Thebans were notorious for homosexuality, as we've been told? No, 
no, homosexuality occurred. And just as we have it today, it is more frequent in the literary class, just like it is today. And it's more acceptable amongst the literati. But they think it makes them cultured. Well, well, right, but many Greeks rejected it, and so did many Romans. Tacitus wrote against it. Many other Greek writers rejected it and, and looked down upon it. But there was always that element of the literati. It was very pro-homosexual, just like we have today. So that Theban sacred band, so-called, those elite warriors, so they said they were made up of, I think, 500 homosexual couples and that they were the best unit in, in the entire Theban military. If they were made up of all, all those homosexuals, how would they ever fight the enemy? They'd be busy, you know, doing each other. <laughs> okay. The poet puts these words into the mouth of Eteocles, this king of Thebes. Now if there shall be one who refuses obedience to my authority, man or woman or whatever is in between, sentence of death shall be passed upon him, and he shall in no ways escape destruction by stoning at the people's hands. Hmm. So we see that stoning was a method of capital punishment among the Thebans according to the poet. Yet stoning is again mentioned as a punishment used among the Argives. And the Argives were not Phoenicians, they were Danans. At the play Agamemnon, line 1616, where it has that the people say to Agistheus, quote, I tell thee, in the hour of justice, thou thyself, be sure of that, shall not escape the people's curses and death by stoning at their hands. So we see that stoning was a method of capital punishment in ancient Greece, as it was amongst the Hebrews, by the people, as it was amongst the Hebrews. When somebody committed a capital crime, the people of the village would stone that person. It's a community affair. Yes, absolutely. The community passes, passes judgment. Absolutely. If you're a murderer or, or if you've done this or that and, and it's a capital offense, You've raped somebody, it's a capital offense. That then um un, under the, the, the yeah, you know, the supervision of the elders of the city or the town or, or the village or whatever wherever you are, you'll you'll be stoned. That's how the Hebrews did it and, and that's how the Greeks did it, and that's evident from a Hescalus. Okay, a Agamemnon, again. A play about Agamemnon. Agamemnon was the um, was the chief of chiefs at the at the war against the Trojans. He was the great leader in the war, the great chief in the war against the Trojans. The poet puts these words into the mouth of Cassandra. Cassandra being the um, the wife of dead Prince Hector of Troy. Apollo, Apollo. I no, I'm sorry, the mother of Hector of Troy. Apollo, Apollo, God of the ways, my destroyer. That's the only quote. That's as much of the quote as I need. Now, Here, may I ask you real quick? I saw a modern recreation of the fall of Troy, and they portrayed Agamemnon as raping Helen. Is there any evidence at all in the classics that that occurred, or is that just a Jewish fantasy? That's a Jewish fantasy because Helen wasn't recovered at Troy. Here the name Apollo is derived from a participle form of apolumi by the poet, which means to destroy. 
And Cassandra says, Apollo, Apollo, God of the ways, my destroyer. Apollo is also called God of the ways, as he was a he was seen to be a protector by the pagans on journeys. And indeed, that's another meaning of apolumi, as used by Greek writers, which was to be driven off. And this is the word translated lost of the Israelite sheep in the New Testament. The Hebrew Old Testament makes mention quite often of a destroyer, often referenced as an angel. And we see the word apollyon, which is a, a slightly different form of the verb, which gives us the name Apollo and the word destroyer. And that's used in the same sense at Revelation 9-11. So I would assert that the idea of Apollo came from the Hebrew idea of the destroyer, the, the, the angel of death. And Aeschylus, the libation bearers, from about line 36, under heaven's pledge, declared that those beneath the earth, I'm sorry, Heaven's will under pledge declared that those beneath the earth complain in bitter anger and are wroth against their slayers. For what redemption is there for blood once fallen on the earth? Now let me read from Genesis 4, 9 and 10. And Yahweh said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And Revelation 6, 9 and 10. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell upon the earth? So, so we see the same idea expressed in this Greek play for what redemption is there for blood once fallen on the earth and heaven's will under pledge declared that those beneath the earth complain in bitter anger and are wroth against their slayers. It's the same exact picture. It's the same exact picture. Being so it, it could very well have the same author for all intents and purposes. Well, right, because Greek culture basically is Hebrew. Aeschylus, the libation bearers, from line 269. Well, the mainstream, Bill, the mainstream people, where would they claim the Greeks came from or how their culture came about? Just random chance? Well, they claim that the Aryans came down from the north and inhabited the lands around the Mediterranean. Well, where did they come from? They, they don't, you know, all right. There's a book by J.P. Mallory. It, it's not a good book, but it's probably one of the more, more balanced books on the Indo-European question. Even though Mallory totally dismisses the idea that the Indo-Europeans are Hebrews, and, and I'd love to debate, debate with him. Well, well um, he has notes in his book, In Search of the Indo-Europeans, from about 24, maybe 28, 30, whatever, a, a couple of dozen, let me say, anthropologists or archaeologists studying the origins of the Indo-European people. 
and he presents a map of Europe. And he has a different color shading for every proto-Indo-European homeland. In other words, the original homeland of white people. And every anthropologist or archaeologist and where they believe that that was. So there's different shading all over this map of Europe. And just about every area in Europe is covered except for maybe Sicily and and and, and Mesopotamia and the Caucasus Mountains. Uh, I mean, every every that in other words, for every anthropologist, there's a wrong theory uh, about the origins of the Indo-European people. If you had a hundred anthropologists, you'd have a hundred wrong theories concerning the origin of the Indo-European people, because none of them want to accept the fact that first the Jews aren't Jews, and second, our origins are in Mesopotamia. There, it's without a doubt. When when you study the classics, they don't want to study the classics. There's only one, um, and I have one of his papers on Christogenia. The only scientist, and, and I'll say scientist from the point of a, um, and, and he is, I, I do consider the man to be a scientist. He's a Russian. His name is Grigoriev, and he is an anthropologist that has tracked all of the Indo-European people back through language and archaeology to what he calls Kurdistan. Now, Kurdistan, ancient Kurdistan, is – Kurdistan doesn't exist as a country. There are a people called the Kurds, and, and they're a, they're a race-mixed people. They're not pure. They're brown, basically. Yes. yes. However, they inhabit a land that, that takes up pieces of far eastern Turkey, northern Iraq, northern Syria, um, southern Armenia, and, and southern Azerbaijan. And, and when you look at that land in ancient times, it, in, it includes ancient media where Herodotus says that they were the first people ever called Aryans. And, and he's talking about Medes, but he might be talking about Israelites among the Medes. Would that be ancient Assyria they're basically inhabiting? Well, well it's the far north of ancient Assyria and Syria, which is the area called Padan Aram in Genesis. And Abraham came from Padan Aram. And Abraham sent back to Padan Aram for Isaac's wife and made sure that the wife came from somebody of his kin in Padan Aram. And Isaac sent Jacob to Padan Aram for him to obtain a wife. And and that's Kurdistan. That's Kurdistan today. And and Grigoriev is probably the only Indo-European writer that I've ever seen make these assertions. And he makes them from a purely scientific viewpoint, from a study of anthropology, archaeology, and language. And he's right. He 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 is so close to the truth that he's everything but identity. He 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 in in name. He even talks about the Scythians passing through this same area and, and crossing into Europe in the 7th century B.C. Well, well, that's exactly congruent. It's exactly congruent with the identity hypothesis. Because that's where the Scythians came from, and that's when they came from Mesopotamia 
and, and the, the cities of the Medes in, into Europe. His name is Grigoriev. It's um, G-R-E-G-O-R-I-E-Y-E-V or something like that. I'm, I'm sorry. It, it's on my website. In, in fact, if you do a search on Chris Degenian for Sintasha, S-I-N-T-A-S-H-A, you'll, you'll probably come up with it. S.A. Grigoriev. If I wrote it, I could probably spell it. Okay. Ahiscalus, the libation bearers, from line 269. Quote, Of a surety, the mighty oracle of Loxius will not abandon me, charging me to this to brave this peril to the end, and with loud utterance proclaiming afflictions, chilling my warm's my warm heart's blood, if I avenge not my father on the guilty, bidding me infuriated by the loss of my possessions, slay them in requital even as they slew, and of other assaults on the avenging spirits he spake, destined to be brought to pass from a father's blood for the darkling bolt of the infernal powers who are stirred by slain victims of kindred race calling for vengeance. And the words belong to Orestes, who's the son of Agamemnon. And his father returns from the Trojan War and he's killed. And, and this is an exact parallel to that same Hebrew next of kin blood avenger that we see in Numbers chapter 35 and throughout the Bible. When a man is slain, his next of kin are obliged to see that his slayer is brought to justice. Now, well, Agamemnon, he was killed by his wife, right? Do you believe well, that? Well, right. And that's why Orestes prevails over avenging his father, because it was his own mother and her lover who killed him. But my point is that the, the um, this is one example, and there are many examples, and we'll probably see more. And that, not to that, mention um, that um, Agamemnon, if you believe what the classics say, he took Cassandra from Troy basically as a captive concubine, didn't he? And that's right out of Deuteronomy, isn't it? Um, yes, and, and I'm sorry, his wife's name was Clutomestra. Clutomestra was his wife, and she killed him. She killed Agamemnon. Whereas when, when non-whites sack a city, they don't take a, a woman as a concubine wife. They gang rape her and chop her head off. Well, yeah, the, the Greeks took all the women of Troy for, um, for their own after they destroyed the city. And they brought them back to Greece, basically, and married them. Well, that's what all the stories say. Whereas if you look at what the Soviets did to Berlin, they gang raped them all and basically massacred them. Yes. They did. And, and let me say that, yeah, you know, in the ancient world, kidnapping of women was quite common. <clears throat> it was very common, and the Phoenicians were the most famous for it. That they would, um, that they were very excellent sailors, and they would sail their boats up close to the shore and, and just hop out and snatch up the women and drag them on the ships and take off. And, and the, the kidnapping of women was very common in the ancient world, and that's why women were kept very close to home. So they hadn't heard of feminism yet. No, no, not at all. Okay, Ahiscalus, the libation bearers, from four, from line 424. 
Upon my breast I did beat an Aryan dirge, even after the want of a Sicilian wailing woman. Okay, an Aryan dirge. Aria was a district of Persia. A Sicilian wailing woman. Tissia was an area of Susiana, the capital district of Persia. And it, it's written, Josephus writes about it in Wars, um, in, in Wars, Book 3, Chapter, or, or I'm sorry, Book 3, Chapter 9, Paragraph 5. Yes, 395 in Wars. And that is um, that he writes about these Sicilian wailing women who, who were professional mourners at funerals. They would be hired to cry and lament and weep at funerals. And in Jeremiah 9, verses 17 to 18, we have, thus says Yahweh of hosts, Consider ye, and call for the mourning women, that they may come, and send for cunning women, that they may come, and let them make haste, and take up a wailing for us, that our eyes may run down with tears, and our eyelids gush out the waters. This is a direct reference by Yahweh in Jeremiah of the, the Persian custom of professional wailing women, which Jeremiah attests that the Hebrews here are also shared. They must have. And, and Josephus mentions in Wars, Book 3. Now, now we have um, the Persians and the Greeks writing about the same. We have the Greeks writing about the same thing of the Persians. So, so we see that the, the Israelites had a similar custom as the Persians. And, and you know, it's that may not be a direct correlation with what the Greeks did, because I don't remember that from Greek writing about themselves. But, you know, the Jews want us to believe that the Israelites lived in a vacuum. They were totally separated from the rest of the world. They had nothing to do with anybody else. And, and that just falls apart when anybody reads ancient literature. It, it falls apart consistently. So would they have us believe that these cultural similarities or even these identical cultures are just pure coincidence? Or would well, they it's, totally it's, ignore the similarities? Well, right. There's a lot more similarities, and, and this is only from two. I've taken all this from two writers in the Tragic Poets, Aeschylus and Euripides. And, and I haven't gotten to Euripides yet, but we're about to. Aeschylus, Eumenides, at lines 448 to 452, quote, it is the law that he who is defiled by shedding blood shall be debarred all speech until the blood of a suckling victim shall have besprinkled him by the ministrations of one empowered to purify from murder. Long since at other houses have I been thus purified both by victims and flowing streams. In other words, the speaker was um, a murderer but he was purified by the suckling by the blood of suckling victims and by flowing streams here we see that the greeks believed that one may be cleansed of sin either by baptism which is flowing streams or by the blood of sacrifice so a blood atonement well absolutely hebrews 9:13 paul for if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh. 
and that's the beginning of a rhetorical question that he asks, but it's also a reference to the method of, of the propitiation of sin in the Old Testament. And the Greeks had the same exact belief. To be sprinkled by the blood of a suckling victim would purify one from murder. The same exact belief that we see the Hebrews practice before Yahweh. How would the Greeks have that same exact belief? And, and the, the idea of being cleansed of sin in a flowing stream. The idea that men may be cleansed from sin by the immersion in flowing streams at the hands of another, which we see in the baptism of John, is not even completely presented in that manner in the Old Testament. Or the idea that man even needs to be cleansed of sin, the idea that sin exists, since most of the other cultures don't really have that concept, do they? They don't have the, the Greek concept of honor and virtue that Socrates taught about, you know, shunning hypocrisy, shunning lies, and pursuing the truth. Well, right. So Greek culture is Hebrew culture. Most other cultures, they believe if it feels good, do it, don't they? That's what the Edomites teach. Absolutely. And that's what all the other races teach. It's you know, part of the jungle. The I studied Socrates extensively, and he said, if it feels good, it may not be good, since good is a state of reality, and good's not a mere feeling. Good is good, and if it is good, then it's going to be virtuous, honorable, and truthful and wise. Just because it feels good, it may not actually be good. He basically condemned the people that taught if it feels good, it is good as sophists. And I'd say that the sophists, they had to be Edomites. Well, in the 5th century, the Greeks believed that you could be cleansed, purified from sin, with the blood of victims. Do you know much about the sophists at the time of Socrates? No, I didn't study the philosophers. I stayed away from the philosophers. Basically, a whole bunch of rhetoricians were going around, mainly Athens at the time, and they were from a school of thought that it didn't matter what you said as long as you packaged it and delivered it well, and you should study rhetoric and learn how to influence crowds just through your delivery and through your charismatic manner of speaking, and that it didn't really matter what the content of your speech was as long as it was well delivered. And Socrates basically repeatedly condemned them. He debated them every chance he had, and eventually they basically banded together and forced him to commit suicide. Since they didn't want, they didn't want him around, they said that he was corrupting the youth. And basically his school of thought was... Obviously, it doesn't matter how you say it if the content is bad or if the content is erroneous. It, it doesn't matter if you package something well. He said basically that it cannot if – it, if it looks to be packaged good but it isn't good, then it isn't really good. He was basically saying that they were just dressing up something bad to make it look good when it was actually bad. Well, I know he challenged the, the common Greek people on it, on on their beliefs and why they believed what they did, and and um, they didn't like him for it. Hmm. I, I think the sophists and the rhetoricians. I, I think they were basically all Edomite interlopers. They were basically pushing a, a an idea that was alien to Greek culture. The idea that style matters more than substance. Well, I wouldn't doubt it, and that's why I stay away from the philosophers. I, I believe that whenever you see that that um. A rash of sectarianism, like you see in the um, in, in the Greek fifth, fourth, well, especially in the third and fourth centuries BC, and that's when most of those philosophers wrote. That that you see it a, a, a whole bunch of interlopers. Yes, I agree with that. And basically, some of the rhetoricians taught that 
good things could come from something bad, and Socrates disagreed with that premise. Well, like I said, I stay away from the philosophers and lean towards the – I only read the poets and the early poets, and that's because early on in Greek writing, poetry was supreme, and that's the way they transmitted their myths and their histories, where the historians were scarcer. And, and the only real early historians that, that are, I think, worse anything are probably Herodotus, Thucydides, Thucydides to an extent, and Herodotus and Xenophon. But there, there aren't a whole lot more from that from that error that actually exists anyway anymore. Okay, Euripides, Bacchae, from line 206. But but first let me say that the Bacchae is a, a play about the Feast of Bacchus, which is another name for Dionysius, the Greek god of wine and revelry. And Dionysius was said to have come from Syria. Now, the poet puts these words into the mouth of the character Tiresias. Quote, will someone say that in preparing to dance with my head crowned with ivy, I show no respect for my old age? No, for the God has not distinguished old from young where dancing is concerned. He wants to receive joint honor from everyone and to be magnified by all without exception. So here we see that dancing is directly connected with the worship of a pagan god. And where is this in the Bible? I would assert that it is found in Exodus chapter 32, verses 4 to 8. Quote, And he received them at their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool. And after he had made it a molten calf, and they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to Yahweh, or to the Lord. Maybe he means the molten calf. I'd have to look at the Hebrew word, I'm sorry. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink before this molten calf and rose up to play. They sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And Yahweh said unto Moses, Go get thee down, for thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made a molten calf, and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed thereunto, and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And, and there we have it. I believe that when the people sat down and eat, to eat and to drink and rose up to play, that they were dancing in connection with pagan worship. They were dancing around their little idol. Well, that's what I believe. Yes, that's what I get out of those verses. Don't they basically do that today? Yes, it's exactly what they do today. And, and they're dancing with the stars, an American idol. Dancing is, and, and this is, you know, a lot of people scoff at, at the um, the old-time Protestants who excoriated, yet, you know, they, they, they wouldn't accept dancing at all. They said it was satanic. They said it was evil, and, and now we see why. Dancing well, people call, people ancient, make, oh, sorry, Dancing in ancient Greece was connected with the worship of idols. Well, from what I've read, when people dance around a bonfire and invite spirits and gods to take possession of their bodies, 
in ancient Greece? Well, they had a lot of mystery rituals, yes. And, and that's what they that was what the bacchae was all about. Women would run half naked through the forests in, in a fit of, of drunken revelry and hmm. and, and um intone that the god took possession of their bodies. So yes. How is that any different from the, the Pentecostal today where the women say that they're drunk on the Holy Spirit and then they start jibber jabbering and angelic languages that they roll around on the ground or dance around comically. And, and Greek men were actually very guarded of the forest where the where the vacay orgy was taking place, because they didn't want other men sneaking in and and into where the women were were making the celebration and pretending to be Dionysius and 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 having sex with their wives on the forest floor. So now we have all these televangelists pretending to be Jesus, seducing women. Euripides, Iphigenia at Aulis, line seventy to seventy five. The man who judged the goddesses, that's how the Trojan War began, so runs the story men tell, which is the story of Alexandros or Paris's judging Athena, Aphrodite, and Hera. The man who judged the goddesses came from Phrygia to Lacedaemon, dressed in gaily colored clothing and gleaming with gold jewelry, the luxury of barbarians. So here we see. In, in the mind of Euripides, the gaily colored clothing and gold jewelry are the luxury of barbarians. At Joshua 7.21, it could be seen that Israelites also despise these things. Quote, when I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels of weight, then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent, and the silver under it. Now a plague was caused in Israel over that, right? Yes. Euripides, Iphigenia at Aulis, from line 1062. Quote, Loud was their cry, O daughter of Nereus, Chiron the prophet, who well knows the song of Phoebus, says that you will bear a son who will be a light to Thessaly. Now, now, that's just a, a um, comment on the language that a daughter of Nereus is told by a prophet that she will bear a son who will be a light to Thessaly. And, and that's very much like the prophecies concerning Christ in the Old Testament. They basically seem to have just lifted us right out of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Well, right. And, and that's because they were Israelites who were in the dispersion. So they would have known what the prophecies were. Euripides, Bacchae, from lines 4 to 5, the poet puts these words into the mouth of Dionysius. I have exchanged my divine form for a mortal one, and have come to the waters of Dirke and Ismenus, their rivers and Thebes. Seeing this in Greek poetry, we can better understand Acts 14, 11 to 12. Quote, and when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Laconia, The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Jupiter, and Paul Mercury, because he was the chief speaker. So, so we see that in, in the plays of the tragic poets that the gods 
exchange their divine form for a mortal one. So now we understand why Paul and Barnabas could have been mistaken as gods having taken the form of men, right? Euripides. I'm sorry. Obviously the green, yes. Euripides, Helen, near lines 1087 and 1125. The poet in both places describes women cutting their hair in grief or disgrace. Compare 1 Corinthians 11.6. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. The shorn hair of mourning is mentioned again, and I'll case this at line 511. And, and that's just a scripture that, that, that's brought to light with, with Greek culture. This is a good one. Euripides, in a play called Phoenician Women. Now, Phoenician Women was written about Thebes. Aeschylus wrote Seven Against Thebes, and that was his, his account of the war of the Argives, who were Danans, against Thebes, who were Phoenicians. So what we basically have is a civil war of various Israelite tribes. Of the They're bringing their old ethnic rivalries with them. Now, the, um, the name of that, that, that same story is told by Euripides under the name Phoenician Women. From line 931, this boy must be slaughtered in the chamber where the earth-born snake, guardian of Dirke's waters, Dirke is the primary river of Thebes, came to birth. The earth-born snake came to birth in this chamber. He must give the earth a libation of blood because of the ancient grudge of heirs, the god of war, against Cadmus. Now, let me say that Cadmus is always called Cadmus the Phoenician in both histories and in the poets. And he is said to be the, um, the leader of the Phoenician colony to Greece and, and the bringer of, of letters and, and arts to Greece. Ayers is now avenging the death of the earthborn snake. If you do this, you will have Ayers as your ally. And if the ground receives offspring or seed in the place of offspring and mortal blood for blood earth will be propitious to you earth who once sent forth the gold helmeted harvest of the sown men now this is a tale concerning the spartans which which they interpreted as meaning sown men from a form of a verb meaning to sow which the the noun sperma it is related to one so of this their race. Seed, then. Yes, one of this race must die. One begotten from the jar of the snake. You see, there was a tale about certain Spartans that they were this. The teeth of a snake were sewn into the ground, and from those teeth sprung these men. Okay, you, so a serpent that has a seed. Right. Exactly. You are one of the last remaining members of the sown men here of pure lineage on your mother's and father's side. And so are your children. Hymon's coming marriage prevents him from being slaughtered, for he is not a man unwed. Even if he has not yet experienced the bed of love, still he has a wife. This colt, sacrificial animal for the city, 
will rescue his fatherland by his death. That's important. Sorry is the homecoming he will give Adrastus and the Argives, casting black death upon their eyes. And glorious he will make Thebes. Of these two fates, choose one. This is a challenge. Save your son or your city. How many Hebraisms are encapsulated in this one paragraph? Kinsman vengeance, the idea of a cognizant earthbound serpent, a race amongst the Dorians believed to have been sprung from the serpent, hence the name Sparta from a verb meaning to sow, Ares, the god of war, and Cadmus, the Phoenician founder of Thebes, are at enmity. The serpent is associated with air throughout this story. And there's other examples of that in the play. And they use the word enmity. Well, well, I'm using the word enmity, and, and they, they show that the enmity exists. Ayers is now avenging the death of the earthborn snake, and, and um, the ancient grudge of the heirs against Cadmus. That's, that appears in the play. That's the word that's used. It, so why, why not just call him Cain and Abel? Well, well right. And, 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 and it's the same story taken down through time, right? That's what it seems to be to me. It's the same story of the race of the serpent, and, and in this case the race of the woman or the Phoenicians of, of Thebes, at enmity with each other. That's what's being retold here in Greek mythology. The serpent is associated with heirs throughout the story, and, and that can be seen in Phoenician Woman, line 657 to 659 also. Cadmus was also said to be the brother of Europa in this story and elsewhere, and we see the Phoenician settlement of Europe is told in myth. Also in this story, we see propitiation by the shedding of blood. We see the death of one for the sake of the nation, in this case Thebes. We see the father's sacrificing of a son on behalf of his nation, which is a Christian story. And we see that the law that, that a man, in, in this case Hymon, who is mentioned in the end of this quote, a man cannot go into battle who was recently married. And, and actually that's a law in the Hebrew Old read Testament. Out, read out of Deuteronomy that a newly married man shall not go to war for an entire year, but he shall stay home and cheer up his wife. Exactly. Well, well, that and that gives him the, the um, opportunity to make sure that he leaves posterity. I, I mean, if you can't impregnate your, your new wife in a year, I mean, you will have a problem. Or there's a spiritual failing. Well, my first kid was born nine months and 11 days after I got married. <laughs> that's, that's how it is with many people. About the Iarians, <laughs> or today as they call them, the Albanians, I'm reading from Wikipedia. They claim that most mainstream historians believe that the Albanians are descendants of the prehistoric Balkans population. That's just absolutely false, isn't it? Have, have the Greek writers ever referenced um, people that are comparable to the Albanians of today? Well, well I'm missing a lot of history in, 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 in my reading from the Middle Ages, all right? All right. So I'm not 100% sure that the Albanians are descendants of the Illyrians. But the Illyrians... Who, who I know through Roman times. I, I mean, um, Justinian, Procopius writes that Justinian was an Illyrian and a Dardanian by, by tribe. And the Dardans are descendants of the Trojans. 
All right. But and the, they became the Illyrians of history. The, the majority of the people in Albania today are basically brown-skinned Turks, aren't they? That, that's what I would be led to believe from, from my slight knowledge of the Middle Ages. I could be wrong. I would have to see them. I don't have a, a um, complete understanding of the tribes of, of the Balkans through, through the Middle Ages. I only know them well up and through the Roman period. It is a majority Muslim country. Well, I'd like to give that rundown one more time. In, in Euripides' play, Phoenician Women, in one paragraph we see kinsman vengeance, we see the idea of a cognizant earthbound serpent. We see a race amongst the Dorians believed to have been sprung from the serpent. We see heirs, the god of war, connected to the serpent and being a defender of the serpent. We see him at enmity with Cadmus, the Phoenician founder of Thebes. We see that Cadmus' sister was named Europa, for whom all Europe is, is, um, is named. And I, I believe that that alone is a, a myth which encapsulates the fact that the Phoenicians settled much of Europe and were the original settlers of, of many parts of Europe. We see propitiation by the shedding of blood, the death of one child for the sake of a nation, the father's sacrificing of a son on behalf of his nation, and the Hebrew law that a man can't go into battle who is recently married. In one paragraph in Euripides. We see all that, and it's all from the Old Testament. Any comment? I mean, what more, what more needs to be said? <laughs> culture is Israelite. So these naysayers that say, well, if this is the case, why don't more historians talk about it? Well, most historians are either Jews or they're on, they're on the payroll of the Jews, aren't they? Well, right. They don't want to talk about it. They, they don't. Most historians shun the Bible. The Bible's not history, it's Jewish fable. The Jews told us. Hmm. Euripides, Ion, around line 440, the poet puts into the mouth of the title, character. Since you have power, pursue goodness. Any mortal who is base is punished by the gods. So how is it right that you, and he's talking to the gods, right, prescribe laws for mortals and should yourselves be guilty of lawlessness? So we see that among the Greeks, the gods were seen as lawgivers, just as the Hebrews received the law from God. Euripides, Ion, line 1269, the title character says, My guardian spirit did me a good turn before I came to Athens. So we see the, the belief of a guardian spirit, or a guardian angel, Matthew 18.10. Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels, or their guardian spirits, do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. Guardian angels, guardian spirits, same idea, Greeks, Hebrews, what's up with that? Electra, line 654. Ten days ago, the time a woman who has given birth keeps pure. Compare Leviticus 12, 1-5. And Yahweh spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a woman is conceived seed and born of man-child, then she shall be unclean seven days, according to the days of the separation for her infirmity, she shall be unclean. 
And in the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. And she shall then continue in the blood of her purifying three and thirty days. She shall touch no hollow thing nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying be fulfilled. But if she bears a maiden, a maid child, a female, then she'll be unclean two weeks, as in her separation. And she shall continue in the blood of her purifying three score and six days. Ninety-six, no, no, sixty-six days, I'm sorry. So, so we see that a woman in, in, he, in the Hebrew law, if a woman has a man-child, has a son, she's separated for about 40 days. And if she has a daughter, she's separated for almost double that, for 80 days. But the Greeks cut it to 10. <laughs> but they still have a concept of a separation. Right. They still have the concept of the separation. They just cut it to 10 days because they just couldn't wait that long. <laughs> they just shortened it a little. But but the concept is there, yes. And and that's one big problem with our race anyway is impatience, right? Euripides, how case this, line 427, shows that the Greeks wore black garments when they were mourning. Now, sackcloth was worn by mourning Hebrews, and that too was black. Revelation 6.12. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. So the Greeks wore, wore black garments when they were mourning, and the Hebrews wore black sackcloth when they were mourning. Euripides, Alcestis. This entire play is about death and resurrection. The heroine, Alcestis chooses to die for her husband, Admetus, whom the fates decreed must die, unless another volunteered to take his place. So Alcestis volunteers to die for her husband. He didn't know about it. And, and die she does. Heracles, being this, descends into Hades and defeats death. Brings Alcestis or Alcestis, back from the grave and restores her to her husband. And, and that entire, and entire the, the entire theme of the play is about um, death and resurrection. Even though it's pagan death and resurrection, it's still death and resurrection. It's still the Hebrew story retold in pagan terms. But it is fundamentally a Hebrew story. Absolutely. And, and you know it's not yeah you know the um the ancient Akkadians who who were also Shemites had a very similar story called Inanna's descent to the netherworld and um, that probably dates to around the time of of Abraham but that doesn't mean that the um, the Hebrews ripped it off from the Assyrians because the Hebrews and the Assyrians were the same race. They were all Shemites, and so were the Greeks. And the Greeks had to get the story from somewhere, and it's obvious they got it from the Hebrews. Human sacrifice. The theme of several Greek tragic poems, including Iphigenia among the Taurians, Iphigenia at Aulis, and Hecuba, 
are, are all about human sacrifice. In the play Children of Heracles by Euripides, lines 579 and 591 to 592, a certain unnamed maiden about to be sacrificed laments her maidenhood. In one place in the play, she states, you see that I am sacrificing my chance of marriage. And in another place, she says, these deeds I have as treasures to replace children and the days of my maidenhood. And this compares to Judges 11.37, where Jephthah's daughter says of her impending sacrifice, and she said unto her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go up and down upon the mountains and bewail my virginity or my maidenhood, I and my fellows. Two very, very similar stories. And the Greeks certainly would have placed a premium on that, wouldn't they, on virginity? Well, yes, they did. Unlike our modern progressive society, you said that the Greeks and the Romans wrote and lamented that there were people practicing perversion and calling it progressive and modern. That was Tacitus. That was Tacitus. That he actually lamented the fact that the Romans accepted every form of perversion and called it modern. That's exactly what he said of it. And, and, and that's what we have today. That's the same situation we have today, where, where when someone rejects homosexuality or, or when somebody rejects certain other perversions, we're, that, that they're told that they're old-fashioned. You're a Neanderthal. Yeah, right. You're old-fashioned. And it won't be long before we're told if you object to a 70-year-old man buggering a child, well, you're just old-fashioned. Get with the times. No doubt. It, it, it's coming. It's, it's probably just about here. I, I mean, Nambler and all these Jews that, that are beating these drums for um, lowering ages of consent all the time and, and, and trying to break us down and desensitize us to um, the, the fact of children having sex. They try and claim that the Spartans and the Athenians were all into man-boy love. Have you found any evidence of that in the class? Well, well let, let me say this, and, and this is true, all right? Among the Greeks, homosexuality was never widely accepted, but it was often that people looked the other way. Mm -hmm. and, and there were writers who wrote and spoke out against it. However, it was, let, let me say it was more permissible for a grown man to have a male teen lover than it was for two grown men to be lovers. Two grown men couldn't be lovers, which also makes the um, your comments about the Stephen Army more of a fantasy. Two grown men were—it it, was—they—they they were absolutely scorned. They—they they wouldn't allow two grown men to be lovers. Well, once. Once your lover grew his first beard, you had to give him up and, and go get yourself some other young boy to grow up. The mainstream historians who claim that the 500 homosexual couples, the 1,000 of the Theban sacred band, were instilling terror in their enemies, that's just some fag fantasy, isn't it? I mean, well, I well it very well may be. I'd have to check it out. I, I can't imagine a 1,000 queers terrifying anybody 
<laughs> I would have to check it out. It very well may be just fantasy, but I don't. I I've heard it, but I haven't read of it in the classics. So halfway through the battle, they'll start falling over because they're dropping dead from you know whatever venereal disease they have. <laughs> okay. So so we you know the theme of of human sacrifice, just like the Bible says of the Israelites. It was pretty common in the early Greek poets. And uh-huh. and, and the story of Iphigenia is that the um, Agamemnon, all right, the leader of the of the bands of Danans who were going to sail against Troy. He sacrificed they, his daughter, didn't he? Well, well, they were held up by bad weather. And, and they were held up for a long time by bad weather, and, and they wanted to get to to Troy. And, and the goddess that, that – uh, I forget which one it was, right? The goddess said that if you sacrifice your daughter to me, you'll you'll get fair weather and, and pass to Troy. So Agamemnon sacrificed Iphigenia, and and then an, an alternate and I think the goddess was a, was Athena, and and an alternate story was that Iphigenia was snatched off the altar and replaced with a ram or a bull or something, and and mm-hmm. taken away to to the Tarians, which is. That that's the theme of the play, Iphigenia among the Tarians, and and it's also the theme of the play, Iphigenia at Aulis, that she was taken to one of these places instead of being sacrificed. They just took this right out of Genesis. Well, it's exactly it's exactly the Isaac story all over again. Yes, and and it's another similarity between Greek and Hebrew culture, and and Greek stories and and. And, and biblical stories, biblical accounts, I should say. Euripides, Hippolytus, lines 962 to 963, and only quoted in part. The bastard is always an enemy to the true-born. Compare that to Hebrews 12.8. But if you be without chastisement, whereof you are all partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. And more importantly, to Galatians 4.29. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. The bastard is always an enemy to the trueborn, is a saying of the Greeks in Euripides, and, and it's from the Hebrew Bible, we know it to be true. And they're not referring to somebody who was born to a man and woman that don't have a slip of paper issued by the local magistrate. Well, well, you know, one thing I was going to pull out for this for this program, and I, I decided to lay it aside, was the fact that in the tragic poets, marriage happened in a bed, not in an altar. Marriage happened in a bed. Euripides, Hippolytus, lines 979 to 980. In the case of a certain event, Hippolytus declares that, quote, the Scaronian rocks near the sea shall deny that I am a scourge to evildoers. Compare that to Luke 19.39-40. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said to him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he, meaning Yahshua Christ, answered and said, I tell you that if these, meaning the disciples, should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. So we have the same reference to talking stones in the Greek writers. Not saying that Christ was a copycat, saying that the culture was the same. Absolutely. And, and 
they would have had the same adages. And to briefly saying. discuss Carthage, Carthage was founded by refugees from Troy, correct? No, 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 no. Carthage was, was Carthage was built by the Phoenicians. Oh, by the Phoenicians. Oh, right. That's, Rome was founded by refugees from Troy, right? Yes, Rome was okay. founded by refugees from Troy. And Carthage was a Phoenician colony, and it's not for nothing that the Carthaginians were worshipping Baal and Moloch at the time of Hannibal. In fact, if I recall, Hannibal had sacrifices to, to the altar of Moloch just before he embarked on his campaign against Rome in the Second Punic War. Well, that's spoken of, yes. Which would beg the question of... sacrifice at Carthage is a matter of history, and it's something that the, we know the Israelites were doing after the manner of the Canaanites. There's no doubt. And that should beg the question, why is somebody in the middle of North Africa sacrificing a child in the manner that Israelites would do to a Canaanite pagan deity? Well, it's the same in, in the, the, the War of the Trojans, the Trojan War. <laughs> you know, Ag- Agamemnon sacrificed this, um, his daughter to Athena. Athena is the Anath of, of Scripture and, and Palestine. Anath was a pagan goddess. And, and that's Athena. It's the same word. If you Once you understand that sometimes they wrote names backwards, sometimes they wrote right to left, and sometimes they wrote left to right, and often names became confused for that reason. And if you look on the earliest Greek vases that date to the 7th and 8th centuries B.C., you will see the names written right to left. Just the way the Hebrews write. And and there's many extant Greek vases where the writing is right to left. And do the mainstream historians have any explanation for that? Well, I I don't know what they say about that because I don't read their garbage. I'd rather read the old books, right? The one thing they raise the issue of, if the Greeks were dispersed Israelites, how come they don't know it? Isn't that fulfillment of Scripture, that Yahweh said that he would forget our children? Right, and he said that the dispersed Israelites would be blind to their identity, would be blind to who they are. They would forget who they are. They would forget him. They would forget his name would be removed from their lips. There's all sorts of prophecy about the blindness of Israel and, and, and how they were to forget who they were. And, and maybe I'll make that the, the subject. I have copious notes on that. Maybe I'll make that the subject of a future show one night. Excellent. A future program. But that's it. I, I mean, Greek culture is Hebrew. And Paul I certainly. Know, I, I don't know what else I could say about that. I don't know what else I would have to add to that. I, I suggest I'm going to post my notes from this program with the program on Christogenia. All right. And, and they'll be together. Right in the audio program, I'll put the notes. And um, I, I suggest people download that, that um, the book from the front page of Christogenia that, that I read the introduction to here at the beginning of this program, Scripture Parallels and Ancient Classics or Biblical, Bible Echoes. And, and it's on the front page of, of Christogenia in an article called Greek Culture is Hebrew. And Paul certainly knew this, which is why he wrote most of his letters to Greeks. And and I did not use that book as, as my basis for tonight's program. I used my own notes from, from the tragic poets. 
and, and the book goes it, it goes into much more detail than my notes do. I, I mean, it, it, he lists hundreds of passages from from Genesis in comparison to philosophers and and, and poets and, and many other Greek writers, and, and it's really pretty decent. I haven't read the whole thing yet, but I've perused it several times, and um, he he makes a lot of little points, but they're all good points. Let's put it that way. All right. And if we could briefly discuss the Macedonians of that era, Alexander would have been essentially racially a cousin to the Greeks, correct? Well, I believe the Macedonians derived from Danon Greeks, yes. That, that's and, and I have several passages in the ancient poets to, to support that with. And I've seen some modern Macedonians, and they look more like Slavs to me. No, the modern Macedonians aren't Greek at all. They are Slavs. But they believe that they are the people of Alexander. Well, well, what happened? You know, the Slavs pushed down the Danube River and and also poured into Greece and um, Illyria, Dalmatia, and and clashed with the Muslims in a lot of those areas. Clashed with the invading Turks in a lot of those areas. However, the Slavic people in um, in Macedonia and and Yugoslavia as a whole, right? Mm-hmm. They were convinced by Stalin's propagandists from the 1930s that they were the Greeks, that they were the famous Macedonians of Hellenic times. And and that was an active program in Soviet schools and communist Yugoslavian schools to convince the Macedonian Slavs that they were the descendants of the Greeks of of the Alexander and, and, and Hellenic times. So today we have several generations of these Slavic people who are convinced that they are the um, the, the famous Greeks of of, of yore? Uh, I mean, it's it's crazy, but that was Soviet propaganda that did that. So they actually believe that they are something they're not. Yes, they actually believe that they're a race of people that they are not. That's ridiculous. Well, it is ridiculous, but it happened. And, and look and at they, our people. We actually believe the Jews are something they're not. Well, right, exactly, and and so do most Jews. The power of propaganda—it's it's it's incredible. But the, yeah, the the modern Macedonians are Slavs; they are not Greeks. And they're Slavs that actually sincerely believe that they're Greeks. And most modern Greeks are probably Turks, aren't they? Well, uh, I would say that a great number of the modern Greeks are probably Turks. I've met Greeks that look like Irishmen, but a great number of the modern Greeks are Turks, yes. In any of the so-called Anatolian Greeks, I've interacted with a few people that claim that their family were um, Greek Christians living in Anatolia in the late 1800s and early 1900s, and they were driven out by the Turks. Were there any they Greeks are, left? They are definitely Turks. There are no Anatolian Greeks left. They're just Christian I, 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 would be, I, I would fall out of my chair if I if I met an Italian Greek that was really a Greek and not a Turk. They're just Turks not. practicing Christianity. Well, well right. They're, they're all part Turk is exactly it. All right, then. Is that everything you wanted to discuss for now? Well, that's it. And and um, that's it. Greek culture is Hebrew. I think I made my point, and praise Yahweh. I think you made it absolutely well. Praise Yahweh.